Earth to Brit can be found wherever you go for your next podcast fix. My handle on Instagram and Facebook is Earth to Brit Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Earth to Brit Pod. Emails can be sent to earth to Brit.podcast at gmail.com. The podcast website is www.anchor.fm slash earth to Brit. Remember, Brit is spelled with two T's. B-R-I-T-T. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Before you enjoy this week's episode, I have a quick disclaimer for you. In the first portion of the recording, you're going to hear about one of the characters referred to as Appellant. And when you hear that, you need to just know that I'm talking about Walter E. Barton, So at any point in this recording, I'm pretty sure it's all focused on the first part. But regardless, if you hear appellant, you need to just know that I'm talking about Walter E. Barton. He's one of a couple characters, the main ones in this story, and his story does matter. This is a Yellow Wave production. Hey everyone, Britt here at Earth to Brit. If you are not expecting to hear me or you're listening to the wrong podcast, I'm glad you're here. Stay stay for a while because we are going to talk about history, basically. Um, this one is a double true crime because there is a murder, which is horrific. And yes, somebody needs to pay. But did the correct person pay for it? And why was Missouri so quick to execute this person and why 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 i cannot tell you enough times how many whys and other questions i have and after listening to this story i think you will too if not i guess we're just on the different page and that's cool too glad you're here um buckle up it's gonna be (laughs) it's always a long one it's always a wild one got augie in the background don't worry this is actually post recording Uh, So the rest of it should be without tons of interruptions, but there definitely are. I did. There are definitely interruptions regardless. Um, For anyone else out there living their life like me in a complete whirlwind and which way's up, which way's down daily, which also what day is it? What time is it? No one knows. Uh, It is actually Tuesday. And the reason that this episode did not come out today and comes out tomorrow, which is Wednesday is because it was the holiday weekend. And so when that happens, it's always a day later. Remember that garbage and recycling schedule I told you guys about in the beginning? Yeah, that's why. It's a holiday. So I should have warned you about that last week. I didn't. Whatever. It's small details, right? So yeah, this case is crazy. Um, it's both the case of Gladys Kaler and the case and possible wrongful conviction and execution of Walter E. Barton. Buckle up, bitches. It is 
alarming and super, super full of information. So let's just jump right in and do the thing. On the morning of October 9th, 1991, Carol Horton, who was a resident of Riverview Mobile Home Park in Ozark, Missouri, visited the trailer of Gladys Kaler at approximately 9 a.m. Kaler, who was 81 years of age, served as manager of the park. She was unable to move about without the assistance of a cane, so Horton would assist Kaler with certain tasks and said that she last saw Kaler at 11.04 a.m. Not ideal, by the way, to be 81 years old and serve as a manager of a park. Although I'm not limiting anyone out there. If you're 81 and kicking, thriving, you do you, get after it, good for you. Um, I don't feel like I'm going to want to be a manager of anything at 81. And I sure as shit am not going to want to have to do it with a cane. Just my thoughts. My two cents. The owners of the trailer park, Bill and Dorothy Pickering, also visited Kaler's trailer, and that was sometime between 1.15 p.m. and 2 p.m., and that was to collect rent receipts. Ted and Sharon Bartlett, who were former residents of the trailer park, arrived for a visit with Kaler as well, and that's between 2 p.m. and 2.15, and they stayed until about 2.45 p.m. Kaler told the Bartlett's that she was going to lie down because she was not feeling well. Kaler, I have a couple questions. I'm wondering if maybe you were just very sick of all these visitors, because if you were, I feel that as well. You're already 80 plus years old. You're a manager of this whole park. You've got to walk around with a cane, and now you've got people visiting you left and right. I'd be like, yeah, I don't feel good. Get out. (laughs) She probably really didn't feel well. I'm just saying, I I feel like from one introvert to another, I I read between the lines. I'm getting the signs that you were trying to tell them, Kaylor, just in case that's what you were really doing. So here's the weird part about this. They don't say the name. They just say appellant whatever whether that's actually his last name or it's just the correct use of the definition of appellant fill in the blanks but I'm just going to keep it as is because they did a pretty good job of this and it makes sense but that part is like strange to me so appellant was visiting Horton remember Carol Horton who had just visited her friend and then yeah okay so just stick stick with me it's all a little bit blurry because there's so many people involved but we will come out on the other side I promise so appellant was visiting Horton in her trailer on October 9th 1991 same day and that's at 2 p.m. Um, nope that's not that's when he left so at 2 p.m. he left Horton's trailer He said that he was going to Kaler's trailer to borrow $20 so again what is going on with this girl's trailer it's like the place to be it's cracking me up (laughs) I mean I'm just picturing all these people coming and going and this poor 81 year old is just like leave me alone so he returned to Horton's trailer 10 or 15 minutes later and said that Kaler told him to come back later and then she would write him a check um I stand corrected by the way I just realized I'm I'm saying appellant because for a reason, but that's not his name. I do know that. 
I also know that you do need to have confidence in me and it's okay if you're questioning me because I really am just like so loopy right now with the holiday and being off a day. It's just like, what is even happening anymore? Just when you think you've got your feet on the ground after everything that's gone on globally, uh, the world's like, Mm-mm, nope, no, nope, no, nope, no, you don't psych. And then you just, everything gets thrown to the wind yet again. So the reason I'm saying appellant is there's a purpose to it. Trust me on this. I know what I'm doing. It might not always come across that way. Fair enough. I'll prove myself. Not worried about it. Just wanted to correct that right now. So yeah, um, tells Carol that she said, come back later. I'll write you a check, blah, blah, blah. So appellant leaves Horton's trailer again at around three o'clock PM. He told Carol Horton that he was going back to Kaler's trailer. At approximately 3.15 p.m., Bill Pickering called Kaler's trailer. You know the guy and who was just there visiting earlier? I swear to God, I'm sorry that I cannot hold back my opinions on this, but can you guys leave this poor woman alone? What the hell? I'm also wondering how anything bad could happen to her when there's people in and out calling all the time. <laughs> Jesus. Is anyone else triggered by this or is it just me? I'm asking for myself, I guess. Okay, so Bill had visited her earlier and he decides to call her trailer because, you know, just can't stop and leave the woman alone. A man who was later determined to be appellant, quotes, remember, appellant, answers the phone and says that Kaler is in the bathroom and can't come to the phone. So then we're going to introduce another character, Deborah Selvage, who's Kaler's granddaughter, uh, spoke with Kaler on the phone sometime after 3 p.m. And then she called Kaler again between 3.30 and 4, but didn't get an answer. So again, people are constantly calling. I don't know if it's just this day. I don't know if maybe they sensed something was going on. I really do hope that her day-to-day did not look this busy. Again, she's 81. Keep that in mind. I'm 32 and I don't want anything to do with this life of hers. So Appellant returns back to Carol's trailer around 4 p.m. He was acting totally different. This is somebody else's observation, by the way, and seemed to be in a hurry and asked Carol if he could use her bathroom. So Carol smells a small little scent of blood on his clothing Um. And after noticing that he had been in the bathroom for kind of a while, like I'm wondering like if she thought maybe he was just pooping or something. So I'm thinking it's got to be quite a while if she's like, there's no way he's pooping. Just, my, again, my two cents. Carol went on to check on him, naturally. Uh, he was washing his hands and said that he had been working on a car. Okay, so that does sound fishy, right? Pocket that. Give me one second. Thank you. You're going to drive me crazy. Um, So, yeah, that's a little weird, right? I know you guys don't know all the facts yet, but that's, like, strange. You just went to this person's house. You've been in the bathroom forever. When did you work on a car? At what point in between these? Sure. Understandable. Uh, Let's see. Hold on. So then around 4.15, Carol told Appellant that she was going to Kaler's trailer. He told her not to go because Kaler had told him she was going to lie down and take a nap. So then Appellant leaves Carol's trailer so, and 
Carol goes to check on Kaler, regardless of what this guy is saying. She didn't get an answer when she knocked on the door, and then she tried to open the door, but it was locked. So she went home, whatever, and then came back again to Kaler's trailer at 6 o'clock p.m., and again, no answer. Deborah Selvage, who had been trying to reach Kaler by phone this whole time, drives to Kaler's trailer. Again, just can't stay away. (laughs) This is almost, it's not funny because somebody died, but good God, people. I mean, (laughs) oh, so it's it's beginning to be funny to me. Like it's actually making me laugh. And that kind of says a lot about where I'm at with what I do on the podcast every week because you got to look for the silver lining and the silver lining is the comedy sometimes, right? So she knocks on the door, no answer. And at exactly 7.30 p.m., she went over to Carol's trailer and was talking to her, expressing her concern. Naturally, I get that. I, I mean, I'm giving everyone on this story a hard time, but I understand if you're calling no answer, someone's 81, you're going to be concerned. You don't know all the visitors, she said. So I totally understand that. So then Carol's, Carol, Carol's son and Selvage, Deborah, by the way, they use last names. I try to keep with it, whatever. Go back to Kaler's trailer. They knock and obviously no response. So on their way to make phone calls, they saw a police officer named Officer Hodges, who agreed to meet them back at Kaler's trailer after he answered another call. I'm wondering if they had this police officer or like an officer in general around like do drives through the trailer park. I'm assuming that makes sense to me, but I don't, I don't feel like he was just there just because I feel like he was doing something else. Who knows? Um, These are the things I think about. I'm not sure. Maybe you do too. What ups? The two women saw appellant at another trailer in the park and Deborah asked him if he would go with them back to Kaler's trailer. He agreed to go, but said that he would be there later. I don't know. Maybe he does have to go to the bathroom now. Who knows? Or maybe he's just finishing something up. Whatever. That doesn't doesn't really matter. So the women drive back to Kaler's trailer, and after a while, appellant arrives. They knock on Kaler's door, and while the women are doing that, appellant walked over to the side of the trailer where he began to pound on the wall of the trailer that was under the bedroom window near where Kaler's body was later found. Officer Hodges comes back and unsuccessfully attempts to open the door, so then he radios a dispatcher to send a locksmith. The officer left on another call, this place is hopping apparently, and when the locksmith arrived, he was able to open the door. So after the doors opened, Deborah and Carol, followed by appellant, enter the trailer. And after calling out for Kaler and receiving no answer, Deborah starts down the hallway toward her bedroom. And then followed by, okay, so she does that. And then Carol and the appellant follow her. The appellant told Deborah not to go down the hall. Deborah did, however, and noticed Kaler's clothing on the floor in front of the toilet in the bathroom, which is, that is kind of weird. Uh, she also noticed that the lid of the toilet had been left up, which I'm guessing also weird because a woman usually, not always, but usually shuts the toilet lid. Men do too. I'm just saying it. she noticed it because it stood out to her, meaning it was usually shut. So Deborah discovers Kaler's body in the bedroom. Her partially nude body lay on the floor between the bed and the wall, and there was a large amount of dried blood on the bed and on the floor. 
Officer Hodges comes back to Kaler's trailer. Deborah directs him to Kaler's bedroom where he, uh, he saw her body between the bed and the wall. So this is when we're going to get into some interesting tidbits. And you know what? Let you decide at the end. And then I'm going to finish off with a very, very unfortunate uh, circumstance because like I said this week is in my opinion a double true crime because a murder was committed and then there was another one possibly of an innocent man so foreshadowing much we shall see hang in there we're going to come back with some just questionable things questionable evidence questionable situations just lots of questionable shit going down as always in the true crime world, but this time it's really, really just <clears throat> unfortunate because of everything that follows after. The Innocence Project was founded in 1992 by Peter Neufeld and Barry Sheck at Cardozo School of Law, and it exonerates the wrongly convicted through DNA testing and reforms the criminal justice system to prevent future injustice. The Innocence Project's mission is to free the staggering number of innocent people who remain incarcerated and to bring reform to the system responsible for their unjust imprisonment. To get involved, you can go to www.innocenceproject.org and join a movement of 800,000 plus supporters on a mission toward criminal justice reform. Your contribution helps us continue the fight for criminal justice reform and exonerate wrongfully convicted individuals. Every action makes a difference. So if you remember, I'm going to say Barton now, or Walter, really. I'm going to say Walter. And instead of Kaylor, I'm going to try to say Gladys, because that's her first name. And it's more personal, and I think that she has earned that right. Just saying. Um, if you remember, he had claimed that he was going there to borrow money, all that stuff. So it is said that... Walter did not appear at all surprised when they found her body and that he showed no emotion whatsoever. Officer Hodges had asked Walter when he had last seen Gladys. Walter said that he had seen her at her trailer between 2 and 2.30 p.m. when he had gone there to borrow money. Uh, he said that Gladys agreed to lend him the money but couldn't write the check at the time. She didn't feel well. She was going to take a nap. Uh, he said that he came back later, but she didn't answer the door and that he never received the check that she was talking about. So Sergeant Jack Merritt of the Missouri Highway Patrol assisted with the investigation and he discovered at the scene a pocketbook and checkbook on a vanity across from Gladys's bed. Although check number 6027 was missing from the checkbook, there was no entry in the check register for that check. All other checks written before that one appeared to have been entered in the check register. So she was basically doing what they teach you in school, um, which the second you get a checkbook outside of that, like me, I do not record anything. I know I'm probably in the minority, but she was one that if she, if she wrote a check, she put it in the register part. She kept track of her shit. Good for you, Gladys. Just a, something to remember. And the first remaining check in the checkbook was number 6028. So 6027's missing, and next in line, 6028 makes sense. That's all in order. Uh, so Sergeant Merritt was aware that Bill Pickering had called Gladys 
at 3.15 p.m. and that a man had answered at the time. Uh, Let's see. Oh, yeah. So he asked Walter what time he answered the phone in the trailer, and Walter admitted having answered Pickering's call, which means that he was there longer than he had said previously. There's, if you just make a little timeline thing, it, it all starts to make sense. If you need to see visuals, I understand that. Do that. It takes two seconds. Well, like two minutes, but it, it will help you if that's something that you need. Um, let's see what else. Not that that's fact. It's just that's a good place to start. Um, um, so then Sergeant Merritt asked if Walter would go to the sheriff's department and he agreed. Once they got there, he advised Walter of his Miranda rights, which is law, but also not usually a good sign. Also, say nothing. Call a lawyer. It's not, it doesn't show a sign of guilt or not. And as we're going to find out, you can be guilty and get free. You can be innocent and be sent to prison. Like, don't worry about that shit. Get yourself a lawyer immediately. Say nothing. And I'm not even kidding. It's insane to me that that's not an automatic response of anyone and everyone who's ever been arrested. Okay. Sorry for the rant, but not sorry. That will come in handy if you listen to me and do the thing. Call the lawyer. Okay. So while he's getting fingerprinted, Officer Hodges noticed that there was something that looked kind of like a blood stain on the elbow of his shirt, Walter's shirt, and what appeared to be a bloody handprint on the shoulder of his shirt. The officers later noticed some blood in, uh, not in, on his jeans. So Officer Hodges remembers that he might have noticed some blood on his boots as well. Don't know if that's uh, true or not, because it was after the fact, but I'm not saying one thing one way or another. Just something to note. So Officer Hodges asks Walter how the blood got on his clothes, and he replied that he had pulled Deborah away from her grandmother's body, and that's must have that's how it had to have happened. Also makes sense. Deborah confirms that that's what happened, that he reached around and pulled her away from her body, from her grandmother's body, and got her out of the room. Uh, let's see, see, see. It's, they're saying that Deborah didn't get close enough to the victim to get into the blood, but I don't know how they can say that because they weren't there. Um, so, yeah, that's another thing that's just like, come on, man. Sometimes the evidence isn't always so straightforward. So forensic testing confirms that small amounts of human blood on uh, Walter's boots and his pants, in addition to the blood found on his shirt, uh, ba 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 all it says is that it's human blood, duh. Well, maybe not duh, but we had a feeling it was headed that way. Um, and But they, it said that the blood on the boot was insufficient to compare with known samples. So they, they can't get anything one way or another on that. Uh, the blood on his jeans had been diluted, so there was also an insufficient amount to make a comparison. The serologist was, however, able to make a comparison of the blood stains on his shirt. So that's where they get this part. The blood found on his shirt could have come from Gladys, but it could not have come from Walter. That's a really long way of saying it's not his blood, it's hers. <laughs> just just in case you need it a little bit easier to digest. Uh, let's see. Okay, so yeah, DNA is crazy. It's, it's, it's just wild. 
and I really can't get into that, but basically the analysis of the DNA on of the blood on his shirt showed that only one person out of 5.5 billion people would have similar blood characteristics. That's basically how they can say it's hers without saying it's 100% hers, even though it is. You get what I'm trying to say. So we're going to move along. So another not cool, but kind of, I mean, it is cool. Okay. It, it's not cool what happened to her. It's not cool that murder happens, but this is cool. Science is so freaking cool. The blood found on the shirt is determined to be very tiny blood drops, which are also known as high velocity blood. So the drops uh, like that are caused by a blow. So an impact, um, something hard and strong and fast in order for that blood to have come out and landed the way it did. So basically the whole theory of him grabbing Deborah off of her grandmother's body, they're saying that that's not possible for that blood to have gotten there like that because of its shape. Blood splatter analysis. Okay. Um, People go to school for that. People do that as a living. I mean, amazing, right? However, that's also, as we know, people who are hired to say stuff or um, come to conclusions on their professional opinions aren't always honest. I'm not saying that's happened here. Keep your mind open is all I'm telling you. Just because someone tells you something doesn't mean it's true. Okay, and that goes all across the board, including me. Make your own opinions, form your own, you know, just form your own shit. Think for yourself. I'm just bringing to you every single aspect so it's a little bit easier. Uh, Also, what was the other? Oh, yeah. So, like, sometimes people are hired to say that. And then a lot of times people are found to have been, let's see, how do I want to say this? People have been found to be professionals and testify in court, but every testimony they've ever given has been overturned because of new information coming to light either scientifically or about them specifically um, be it on purpose on accident whatever it's nothing's ever final and nothing's ever 100% true if that makes sense so just because they're saying this doesn't mean that that's true and it also doesn't mean that that's how it happened there are just so many variables just remember that so then we're going to talk about a pathologist named James Spindler excuse me Spindler who conducted the autopsy of Gladys. So her shirt was saturated with blood, obviously. I mean, that that's a given. There were 34 cuts in the front and back of her shirt. Um, her bra had 11 cuts of those. And then she also sustained five blunt force injuries to her head that were consistent with a heavy cylindrical object, like a baseball bat or something like that. Um, she'd been stabbed and slashed several times in the eye area, which anyone else cringing because oh my god that makes me want to just full body chills I want to throw up that's so who okay it gets worse okay so that's bad right yeah that's real bad um her right eye had been slashed through and she sustained a stab wound to her left eyelid so like which one of those is worse uh let's go with c all of the above those are both horrific and in different ways. And I just, we got to move on because this is seriously so gross. Okay. Um, okay. So the left eye, 
they can't really say for sure if it happened before she had passed away or not, but the right eye slash was inflicted for sure before her death. Lots of ways to determine that. It's very interesting and fascinating. Just look it up, look into it. It's amazing. Also, real quick, you're probably going to hear somebody mowing right now. We've got construction going on behind us is on top of that, and there are kids screaming in the pool behind our house for about five hours now, and that's great. Good for them. I'm happy for them. Slightly jealous, if anything, but I'm not upset. I'm just letting you know if you hear some serious shit going on. I'm not in a murder house. Everyone is fine, <laughs> and hopefully it doesn't interfere with the sound quality too much. There's only so much I can do. So yeah, the the one in her right eye was done before she died. Hopefully, she, that now here's the thing. That doesn't necessarily mean she felt it, and I'm hoping for her sake that she did not. We'll never know, but let's just, sometimes you just got to get through it and pretend that she didn't feel it, just to do the thing. Uh, try it. It's, it's a trick that you just really have to use eventually. Um, let's see what else. Oh yeah, so she then she also had another four stab wounds to her neck the most serious of which severed her jugular vein and cut down to the bone in the back of her neck. Again, cringing so hard over here, that makes me want to throw up as well. If I get through this and I haven't thrown up and you haven't either, let's let's make that a drinking game. <laughs> I'm in. Anybody else? I think we earned it after this. I earned it for doing it. You've earned it for listening to it. Everybody wins. Um... I mean, do I want to tell you all of these things? Probably because it happened to her, so it needs to be heard. That's how I look at it. So yeah, I have also have almost a headache now thinking of somebody slitting my throat so bad that it gets into the neck bone, and I'm touching that bone right now. Comfortingly, like, you're still here. You're okay. <laughs> I mean, Jesus, this is so vicious. It's, it feels like a crime of passion. Not passion. It feels like, well, maybe, but just like, so much anger um okay so because of the wounds the stab to her chest her left lung was deflated which also means that she suffered extensive bleeding into the chest cavity like drowning basically in every shape and form of drowning possible that's so this is just so graphic whoa okay so he also concluded that her breasts were being held down while she was being stabbed in the chest four large deep slashes had been cut into her abdominal area forming two x's and one of the x wounds was so deep that her intestines were protruding from the wound here i go turning the switch off so that i can get through this another sad part good for her you got to fight to survive I feel like everyone, anyone would, but it's also so sad to me when they find defensive wounds, and they did. They found four defensive wounds to the back of her hands and arms. And then, unfortunately, her genitalia revealed a lot of bruising and tears in the vaginal area. The injuries were, thank God, not caused by a knife, but still, um, that's awful. They were put there by some blunt instrument or a penis however there was an absence of sperm this is just really devastating so how did she die exactly after all that shit how did it happen and hopefully let's just all again pray and pretend that she passed out and was unconscious long before she felt most of this please like 
that's just horrific. Um, he, Dr. Spindler, the one who did the autopsy, he decided, and by decided, I mean, he followed the evidence. It wasn't like he was like, I'm going to go ahead and go with this. So he, fo- he followed the evidence and decided that she died from a combination of blood loss, shock, and stab wounds to the throat and chest with her lung collapsing and then the hemorrhage of the lung spaces being contributing factors. I wasn't there, although I feel like I was. I couldn't agree more. And that's coming from a very unprofessional who thinks that they are professional. Me. <laughs> so later on, um, we're going to, like, a couple of things that happen. We're just going to go straight into those. But, like, try to keep up. It's It seems confusing, but if you really just let yourself relax and listen to this and take it in without going one way or another and blocking off all the other information, bring it all in, let it all sit there and soak in your consciousness while you're listening. It'll be much easier for you to follow along and to make up your own decision on this, your own opinion. So there was a young woman one day picking up trash with her church group that was on October 12th, so just a couple days after this happened. And she found a check. And wouldn't you know, that check was check number 6027. Weird. I know there's other 6027 checks, but what do you think the chances are? Oh, not that crazy because in the amount of $50, which if you remember, he was talking about 20. So that's interesting. uh, There was a check written for $50, 6027, and it was Gladys Kaler's account. And it was made payable to Walter E. Barton. So they brought in a criminologist from the Missouri Highway Patrol and to find out, like, who wrote the check. Is it because appearances aren't everything? It could have been anyone. It could have been someone completely unrelated to Walter E. Barton or Gladys Kaler. But in that opinion of that expert, um, they agree that Gladys Kaler wrote that check. So another interesting thing is that while he was being held in the Christian County Jail, which this happened in Christian County, uh, Missouri, by the way, Walter told his cellmate, Larry Arnold, that he killed an old lady by cutting her throat, stabbing her, and cutting an X on her body. Walter said that he had thrown the murder weapon into a river. Okay, so just, again, doesn't mean that any of this is true, so just take this with a grain of salt. So then there's another inmate, Ricky Ellis, Uh, And he was about two or three cells away from Walter in the same jail, obviously. And he overheard Walter say that he was going to have Arnold killed because um, he had discussed the murder with him and found out that Arnold had talked about it. Again, grain of salt, okay, with all of this. Catherine Allen, she is a trustee in the Lawrence County Jail, was incarcerated with Walter E. Barton. And during an argument when... Catherine, um, hold on. This doesn't even make sense. During an argument, okay, sorry, you guys. I mean, what is reading? What is talking? Reading is right up there with it. What are words? What's, what is communication? Anyone remember? Um, I hope you guys are following along. So, because this is just so crazy and it's so important and it's history is made and you'll see again hang in there you'll see what i'm talking about soon so during an argument with Catherine, walter told her that he would kill her like he did 
Gladys, basically. Sounds like real basic language. Not, I don't know about that. Um, again, you do you. Keep your opinion. You know, don't worry about me. I'm not trying to sway one way or another. I just, when you, certain language, when there's certain quotes and stuff, it just sounds like you don't even know what you're saying. You're saying it in a way that you think you're supposed to say it. Does that make sense? To where it just like is like telling on yourself that you're not being honest. Again, I don't even know. She could be. Just my observation. So we've got Craig Dorser, another inmate in the same jail. And he testified that Walter said that he was in jail for murdering an old lady. Okay, well, he is. It doesn't mean he did it. Okay, I will... I will slow my roll. It's just, come on. That's why he's in jail. That doesn't mean he did it. And also, he, that this might not even have happened. They might have never even talked to each other. So keep that in mind, too. There's there's endless options. It's like a buffet of choices, and there's, there's choices you didn't even know existed, right? That's a great analogy. So think of it like that. Um, ba -ba -ba. Okay, so according to him, Craig, Walter said that he stabbed her 47 times, and was getting blood on his face and clothes and shoes and that he licked the blood off his face and liked it. Wondering if this happened when the song came out with Katy Perry that he she kissed a girl and liked it. Because that sounds like exactly that, but just using your own words for it. Could be true though. Again, this could be true. So after this trial, okay, at the close of all the evidence and after instructions and arguments of counsel, it's a whole freaking thing, you guys. The jury found Walter guilty as charged. So now we move on to the penalty phase. And this is when the state presented evidence of two prior assaults committed by Walter. In 1976, he was convicted of assault with intent to kill committed against a female convenience store clerk. He was paroled in February of 1984. Then in March of that year, he attacked, beat, and choked another female convenience store clerk in West Plains. The clerk screamed, and Walter threatened to kill her if she wasn't quiet. However, probably because of her screams, the attack was interrupted, and he ran away. The clerk had a black eye, a swollen jaw, and neck injuries as a result of Walter's attack. So in that one, he was convicted of assault in the first degree. And during the penalty phase, he presented the testimony of six witnesses on his behalf. That's pretty impressive, too, I I'd have to say. I'm not sure, actually, what is standard for that. But I feel like to have six people testify on your behalf, granted, you're hoping that they are being honest and knowing the severity of their testimony one way or another um if if all that is hunky-dory and good to go which usually is not the case <laughs> just saying uh that's really impressive in my opinion i mean he could have just been a good smooth talker who knows there's again endless options we're at that buffet remember we're still there we're not full yet and there's still endless options i'm reminding you just as much as myself so at the close of this current penalty phase and after the instructions and arguments and all of that, again, it's just like never ending, you guys, never ending. A day in the life of court, 
anyone in court, the defendant, the prosecutors, the jury, the judge, the lawyer, I mean, no thank you. They found statutory aggravating circumstances. So he is convicted of assault with intent to kill on August 16th, 1976. And that was in the circuit court of Lackley County. And he actually was convicted of assault in the first degree on June 18th, 1984. Hold on. This isn't quite making sense. Oh, you know what? That's why. I'm trying to get so... I'm trying to jump ahead too much. <clears throat> also, I need to make this writing bigger. There we go. Okay. So, we're talking about the previous attack still. When he had those six witnesses. At the close of that, all of that happened. He was convicted of assault with intent to kill. That's in 1976. And then, because in the first degree on June 18th and 84, and... Also, that the murder of Gladys Kaler involved... So now we are jumping back to normal times, even though it's not, but like normal times for the situation. Okay? Uh, if that's confusing, I'm really sorry. Just... We're talking about Gladys Kaler at this point. Okay? He did have those two priors, and that's what happened with that. And as far as with Gladys Kaler, uh, he was found that the murder of that involved depravity of mind and was outrageously and wantonly vile horrible and inhumane because according to them Walter but really whoever actually killed her even if it is Walter that's what I'm trying to say because the killer whoever that is or isn't well no not who isn't whoever that is whoever actually killed her while they were doing so or immediately afterwards they purposely mutilated and grossly disfigured her body by acts beyond that necessary to cause her death so like yeah she's dead and then we're just going to go to town and not give a fuck and just do her more harm. Like it's really extra, basically. There you go. Today's terms, extra, super extra. So because of that, the jury recommended a sentence of death. So on June 10th, 1998, the court imposed sentence in accordance with the recommendation of the jury. Walter brings this appeal from his conviction and sentence of death. So he's sentenced to death. And then because of that, he brings this argument and brings it forward like this isn't fair and this is why. So he alleges that the trial court abused its discretion in denying his request, request, my bad, during voir dire to ask the veneer panel specific questions regarding pretrial publicity. Standard shit. He does not allege that any of the persons who served on his jury held opinions that would have prevented them from impartially, impartially, can I speak? <laughs> okay. I'm going to take one second and then I'm going to be right back because I need to get a drink of water and like walk around for a minute. I cannot feel my legs and that's probably not helping my situation. I'll be right back. I'm going to start the whole paragraph over. No worries. So if you're trying to get through the shit show that I just put on, don't don't even waste your time. I'm going to be back and I'm going to make it crystal clear waters for you, okay? Want to make a difference in someone's life? There are millions of ways you can do that, but this one is extra special. 
It's something I've always wanted to do, and recently I did the damn thing. I wrote to a prisoner. A prisoner who is desperate for a friendship outside the walls of prison. Write a Prisoner is an amazing program that allows you to search prisoners who are requesting letters from all over the world. You can do a basic search like age, maximum sentence length, even horoscope sign. Or you can do an advanced search, raising my hand over here, that's my jam, and get real specific. I chose all, which on the site is any, meaning no stipulations, but I felt pulled the most to an inmate on death row. You can search for as long or as little as you like. I searched for five and a half hours because I knew I would know as soon as I saw the one. Female, male, it didn't matter to me. The crime didn't matter. My search paid off because, as I suspected, I knew right away when I found my pen pal. I have zero doubts that this experience will impact my pal, but it'll probably impact me the most. I'm not crying. You're crying. <sighs> Curious? Head over to www.writeaprisoner.com and find your friend or friends because there is no limits to how many pen pals you write to, but it is highly suggested that you do not write to multiple prisoners at a single location. Go. Do it. For more information, go to www.writeaprisoner, that's W-R-I-T-E-A-P-R-I-S-O-N-E-R.com and change a life. back at it and ready to cruise, if you will. So Walter alleges that the trial court abused its discretion in denying his request during voir dire to ask the veneer panel specific questions regarding pretrial publicity. So he does not allege that any of the persons who served on his jury held opinions that would have prevented them from impartially determining his guilt or innocence. Rather, he claims that he was denied the opportunity to determine what prejudices or biases these jurors might have had as a result of the pretrial publicity because he wasn't able to determine the source of their information. So, like, there were a couple that stated that they knew about the case or had heard about it, but he wasn't able to find out how or why or what any more details on that. Um, he also further argues that the trial court's action amounts to a sweeping limitation on voir dire, which rises to the level of reversible error. He claims that the trial court's actions denied him due process, a fair trial, and the right to an impartial jury. And then there's a bunch of uh, references for that that I'm, it's important, but I'm not going to bore you with because it's, it's not essential because we're not in court. This is a podcast. Very different. <laughs> very, very different. Could you imagine if I... Oh, my God, if this was court, and I could not. I can't even go there. So six days before the finishing up of the jury selection in the case, the Benton County Enterprise newspaper, which is in Warsaw, Missouri, they published a front-page article about this case. And the article noted that the victim was... Um, on. Okay, so the article noted that the victim was Walter's former landlord and that Walter had been evicted, that this was his fourth trial, and that the appellant, Walter, uh, had been convicted and sentenced to death in 1994, but that this court had reversed that conviction. So basically, like, really get putting shit out there that's not ideal to have. 
in response to concerns about the effect of any pretrial publicity. The trial court asked that the entire veneer panel um, mention, like, if they had heard, seen, or read anything from any source about the trial or about Walter. 64 members of the panel stated that they had heard about the case. So Walter requested individual voir dire of the 64 people who had been exposed to pretrial publicity. Naturally, right? The trial court determined that it would be more efficient to question these people in small groups. During the small group questioning, several people volunteered the fact that the source of their pretrial publicity was a newspaper article. Although the court allowed counsel to ask a large number of questions designed to reveal the presence of bias, prejudice, and impartiality as a consequence of pretrial publicity. The trial court did not permit counsel to ask these specific people the specific source of their information about the case. So that's pretty important depending on what is the source, like how they heard about it and what that source brought. Let's think of an example. Hold on, Ken. Let's say we read two different articles about one situation and they're going to look very different if you read one in Oprah's magazine or if you read one in what is it the Inquirer is that the one that's like they have pictures of like aliens on the front or they'll have like a celebrity at the beach Atticus is trying to get on the mic I guess a celebrity on the beach that is so clearly photoshopped that it's actually laughable i can't tell you how many times i've laughed in the grocery store aisle looking at some of this shit they try to sell it's hilarious and it's what's more funny is the people who buy it and even worse than that the very bottom the people who believe it anyway think of it like that it two two stories totally given to you in different format in a different way and you're you're that impacts you how you see the information and the specific source of it and the specific information they provide, that is a big deal, especially when you're talking about somebody's sentencing. And add to that the fact that we're talking about a death sentence. That is, first of all, how is that a thing, right, that we can do that? But okay, here's the thing. We can in Missouri. So Regardless of your opinion on that, we're talking about someone, life or death, who may or may not have committed the crime, but that that is important. And I feel like they have the absolute right to find out that information before jury is selected. It's just, that's the whole point of Wadir. Here's the thing. So a lot more goes on, okay, that is just incredibly fascinating and interesting, but it's so voluminous in its context because... It's so much stuff and so many cases that are comparable to it and just different notes in the court. It's just, it's a lot. It's great. It's it's all important, but it's just too much to narrow down here for you. What I will say is a lot of other things were appealed for, for Walter. Like, um, well, he tried to appeal. Um, like, let's see. So the whole jailhouse informant thing, that was an issue. Um, also was the fact that he tried for a different venue and that was denied. And they go back and forth with the reasons of why it's not fair versus why it is. There's also a lot of other cases thrown in, like why death is um, acceptable for punishment during this conviction because of how it's compared to other cases where it was used. And that's when I'm just like, okay, I get all this, but like th- I have a problem with that specifically regardless of walter's innocence or guilt whoever committed this crime okay let's say we have that person be it him or not just for sure we have that person 
and we're saying that it's okay to sentence this person to death because this crime is similar to other crimes that the person was sentenced to death. To me, that's not logical and that doesn't make sense like at, at all. In fact, that's an argument for the fact that maybe you shouldn't compare anything ever and just look at the case as fresh as can be. I, with that being said, I get why they are doing it. I get, I understand why that's a thing. I just, I just disagree with it completely. Um, I don't want to do things just because other people do them. And that's the most basic way I can say that. I don't, I don't care if because of this happened, like it's the same as that. I don't, that's just going to keep us in the same position and not that has no room for growth in any way, shape or form or change or anything like that. That's, that's a very good recipe basically to be stuck exactly as you are still no change. Some of this stuff might, by the way, overlap. It might not, it might be all completely new to you. Just trust me. It's crazy. Um, I woke up to a text message. Let me see, actually. Let me get my phone. What day was this? Because you, you know the days do blur and blend together. <laughs> so I've signed up with Innocent Innocent Project, Innocence Project, and get texts from them, stuff like that, updates, all that. Like, it's pretty cool. And it was Wednesday. That doesn't help. What date? I'm guessing last Wednesday. I don't even want to get out. I'm getting really invested in finding the day. The 20th. Okay, there we go. Wednesday, May 20th. Got a text from the Innocence Project about this. And uh, yeah, it's pretty messed up, regardless of guilt or innocence. Okay, let's again, whether he did it or he did not. This is crazy to me. Aside from the fact that the death penalty exists, on top of that, this is crazy. So, May 19th, 2020, 7.37 p.m. Eastern Time, the U.S. Supreme Court denied a request to intervene in Walter Barton's case this afternoon. Barton was executed this evening in Missouri. He is the first person to be executed in the U.S. during the COVID-19 pandemic. The Innocence Project extends our condolences to the Barton family. So sad. His last words were, I, Walter Archie Barton, am innocent and they are executing an innocent man. Regardless also of his past crimes, this is crazy. This is just something like you have to stop and think about this. And they also provide us with some information that is quite alarming and has me questioning a lot of shit right now. Uh, and I don't know what to do or think or say, but I do know that at the end of it, it's really something smells fishy. What's the rush? Okay, so I'll let you guys decide after I read you some information from the Innocence Project that was provided. And these are all facts, okay? This, this stuff, we don't know for sure if he did or did not. Okay, but we do know that this, what I'm about to tell you, is true. So, May 19th, as we know, they executed him. They refused to halt the execution. 
after the Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit lifted the stay on his execution, discounting evidence of his innocence because it was previously available to his defense counsel. That's what they say. So they also updated us with the fact that Barton will be executed this evening. He will be the first person executed, blah, 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 like we said, during the COVID-19 pandemic. That alone is extremely alarming. What the fuck is going on? Uh, So like we know, he was convicted of a 1991 murder based on unreliable evidence and has always maintained his innocence. On Monday afternoon, Missouri Governor Parson designed Barton clemency and Barton's legal team filed an appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. Did I say designed? I meant to say denied. FYI. The Midwest Innocence Project, the Innocence Project, and the MacArthur Justice Center had asked Missouri government, government, oh, come on, man. Seriously, Governor Michael Parson to stop Barton's execution and appoint a board of inquiry into his innocence. Unfortunately, he didn't step in. Here is where it gets wild. This is what you need to know about this case. Again, some of it's going to overlap. Some of it might not. This is just a fresh take on it. And it all comes together very nicely in a very uneasy package that's going to make you feel like, what is going on? And that is exactly how you should feel because we need to know what is going on. Why? Huge old why right now. So number one, Walter Barton is likely innocent. He was convicted based on the testimony of, as we know, the unreliable jailhouse informant and the use of bloodstain pattern analysis, a forensic method whose validity scientists have questioned. Nearly half of all DNA exonerations in the U.S. involved the use of misleading or misapplied forensic science, like blood splatter, blood spatter evidence. I can do this. <laughs> When you just are so frustrated at yourself, just laugh at yourself because that really helps. What else are you going to do? New forensic evidence points to his innocence. Also, all of this, like that fact, is something that you can look more into, but this is long enough. I just want to raise up the questions and the red flags and then maybe follow up with this, maybe not. But either way, it's enough to really, really wonder why this had to happen in such a rush. The only piece of physical evidence, as we know, that was used to connect him to the murder was a spot of blood that was found on his shirt, as we also know. He always said that it got on his shirt because he was pulling off the victim's granddaughter, Deborah. And again, this is something that Deborah never, ever, ever denies. She confirms this still. Uh, Also, another fun fact, new expert analysis has revealed that the spot is consistent with Barton's account of events and that it is not a result of spatter from the crime. Significantly, the victim was stabbed 50 times and the real perpetrator of the crime would have been covered with blood, which Barton was not. Yeah, okay, so there's the whole thing about the car and how he's washing his hands. Uh, Maybe he was pooping, by the way, and washing his hands, as you should do. And this is before COVID-19. If anything, he was ahead of the times and doing it right. Um, Just saying, I mean, for real, because, again, they put that into the other kind of, uh, what am I trying to think of? They put that into the other part of it, the first part that I talked about, as like it's evidence when not really it could be but it also could not be because at the end of the day because of her violent death and the way it was done he 
this is so true. Whoever did it would be absolutely covered with blood. And he wasn't there. It's just that it does not happen. This is not possible. That part is not possible. Um, let's see. Okay. So then there's another physical evidence in the case, which we didn't talk about. And that's hair found on the victim's torso and biological material underneath her fingernails, neither of which matches Barton. Very telling. Another fun fact, and by fun, I mean very disturbing and alarming. Barton has been tried five times and had two convictions overturned. That's a big deal, you guys. That's a very big deal. His first trial ended in a mistrial and his second in a hung jury. He was convicted at the next trial, but the conviction was overturned because the defense counsel's closing argument, which pointed out discrepancies in the timeline of the case, had been restricted during the trial. At his fourth trial, Barton was convicted, but again, his conviction was overturned after the prosecution was found to have engaged in multiple acts of misconduct, including the use of perjured testimony from a jailhouse informant. This same informant testified at Barton's fifth trial, his latest to date, at which he was convicted and sentenced to death. So his fourth trial, he that conviction was overturned because of not only the use of this testimony that at this next trial gets him convicted again, but because of other stuff that the prosecution was found to have done. Things that are labeled misconduct. Prosecution, by the way, is the one who goes for the punishment, trying against him. That is one of the most troubling aspects of this. I mean, speechless. I'm speechless. I, I have no words because that is so fucked up and I'm so not okay with that at all. Okay, because again, we're talking about someone's life and not even just that, like even if it was just life in j- prison with no um, parole, it doesn't matter if he didn't do it. I mean, and, the, and besides that, we have a prosecution who is mishandling things in a very inappropriate way. And it's so inappropriate that it's overturned. And then somehow in the same system that one of those things that was deemed inappropriate and misconduct is used again in the next trial. What the fuck is happening, Missouri? Or, okay, and or the judicial system. People say it's the best in the world. I don't doubt that. That's what alarms me. We have the best system in the world and this shit's happening in 2020, no thank you. Anyone, I'm sorry, I'm getting really upset right now because no thank you. And there's always room for improvement. So don't even come at me with we're the best so we don't need to be better. I don't. I call bullshit. I don't care that we're the best. I don't think we're nearly good enough. Just putting it out there. We're not even done. <laughs> so I got to reel it in. This is the second week in a row. I just can't help myself. Okay. Oh, you know what? In true Brit form, here at Earth to Brit, I thought that was the worst, and I did until I read further. So the unit that convicted Barton is also responsible for the wrongful conviction of at least four other innocent men. Barton's case was prosecuted by a special unit in the Missouri Attorney General's office, which prosecutes capital cases throughout the state alongside or sometimes instead of the local county's prosecution office. So the same office is responsible for prosecuting Joshua Kezer, Dale Hemming, Mark Woodworth, and Brad Jennings, all of whom were later exonerated. 
In total, these men spent nearly 60 years wrongfully incarcerated. Judges ruled that the prosecutors from this unit had repeatedly misstated the evidence, knowingly presented false testimony, and they failed to disclose evidence in their cases. This office has now prosecuted Mr. Barton five times, leaving, as one Missouri Supreme Court justice noted, a trail of mishaps and misdeeds that taken together reflect poorly on the criminal justice system. Took it out of my mouth. Same. I could not agree more, and I am embarrassed on behalf of all of us that this shit is happening. Okay, so I'm just going to keep on going, otherwise we'll never be done. I could talk about this forever. The Innocence Project, this kind of stuff, the judicial system, mishaps, just dirty, dirty games, and the fact that it's just that, a freaking game. It's not. There's somebody who did this crime. Stop trying to make the shit fit get the right person, be fair. It's really easy. To me, it is the most simple freaking thing, but apparently it's just too hard for some of us to do. So the next little fun fact, disturbing fact, at least three jurors who voted to convict Barton now say they would have voted differently if they had seen the new evidence. This, you guys, unfortunately happens all the time. And this goes both ways, not just for the innocent or for the defendant, this goes both ways. It's a, I'm telling you, it's like a game. It, it's just, and who can play the game better is really it, not who's guilty, who's innocent. I know I'm a little extreme, but when you break it down, that's really what it is. So they say that they have doubts about his guilt, and they wouldn't have voted to convict him if they had seen the new expert testimony about the origin of that bloodstain. And in recent affidavits, the jurors stated there was not a unanimous support of Barton's guilt when the deliberations began. They were basically like swayed one way or another. So then also, uh, Barton has inadequate counsel. He is stated that he just, oh wait, no, he didn't even state that. So it's just a known fact that his counsel was not good at all, including one attorney who has since been suspended from the practice of law. Not a good sign because we've still got these prosecutors out there who with the four other innocent men and the ones who misconduct and then the very next trial, they do the same shit again. First of all, fuck you. I'm serious. Sorry for the language, but I'm not. You are a disgrace. Again, I don't care who we're talking about. I don't care if you're defending or prosecuting. That's a disgrace and you're not disbarred. And then we've got this guy's counsel who is disbarred. It's a total shit show, you guys. Also, the last one that everyone's probably wondering about right away. Missouri is the only state attempting to execute someone in the middle of a global pandemic. Mic drop, right? Seriously. So his execution is the first since the coronavirus coronavirus outbreak hit the U.S., No other state is seeking to execute individuals at this time due to concerns that executions cannot be carried out, risking the spread of the virus. So far, like Ohio, Tennessee, even Texas have postponed all executions. If if Texas is postponing deaths, then you don't, no, you don't mess with Texas. And like, I'm serious. They are like the death cap. If you get sentenced to death there, you're going to die. It's, it's crazy. Not even they're doing it, which again, all uh, opinions held aside slightly, not really. 
you shouldn't be killing people anyways, but we're going to move right along. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, anyone else mind blown? Because how did this, how did this man receive due process when all of this shit's going on? There's so much stuff happening, so much being brought to light, so many dirty players. It's not fair. It's not right. And, uh, because of that, like, okay, here's the other thing. How about this? How about there's a pandemic, so don't kill anyone? Okay. I'd have it go further than that, as we all very much know. I can't help myself, but it's true. Uh, At the very least, let's just pause that for now. Also, let's take a look at what we just talked about, all those things. The fact that he had inadequate counsel, sure, that happens a lot. Not fair, but that's not everything. The most glaring are the fact that the whole mistrial, the misconduct, I mean, the convictions being overturned and using the same trick that was deemed not okay in the very next trial and it's not overturned. How does that happen? How is that a thing? Seriously, I'm asking. Tell me. Um, Also, those other four innocent men, just like with past cases where we talk and we're like like with um sandusky for example the 10 victims we all know that there is more than 10 well guess what there's more than four innocent men who have been incarcerated if not killed not only by these people but all over the place go to innocence project check it out do some research and uh let's just give someone a chance to prove themselves one way or another before we rush to kill them in the middle of a pandemic on top of everything else Silly boy. This is a Yellow Wave production.